You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jim Kazang and I, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rural space investor. Jim, it is wonderful to be back with you this week. It feels like it's been quite a while since we last spoke. How are you doing? Doing well. It's been a uh, busy summer and into fall for me. So have, uh, in particular, the last month been uh, kind of all over the world, uh, meeting clients and uh, potential clients and and speaking at conferences. So uh, it's it's been fun, but I'm I'm excited to be back in Chicago and settling down, uh, spending time with family and with work. Uh, you know, getting into more of a routine. I know exactly how that feels. Been on the road myself, and it's uh, actually really nice to be uh, back home. Anyways. Before, I mean, we've got a pretty good lineup of uh, topics, um, thanks to you. Uh, and before we tackle those, we also have a couple of questions. But before we even get to that, you know, one of my favorite questions, as always, to pick your brain about just a few couple of minutes, big picture. Um, that's sort of what's been on your radar. Nothing linked to necessarily the topics we're going to talk about. Just something that you picked up on your travels, maybe that you find interesting. Oh, from the travels, um, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, similar hand-wringing globally about uh, kind of a realization that we might be in a new regime. I think that was not the case six months, a year ago. People were still holding on to this hope that this was all transitory and uh, things would change. So I think there is a broad acceptance that we're in a global time of, of strife geopolitically, economically. Um, and I think uh, from a uh, from financial market side, People are really trying to pivot and and adjust, and that's a very these things don't move fast, right? These are you know trillions of dollars of capital trying to reassess, um, and so that's been really interesting for me. A lot of those conversations, things that we've been talking about here for maybe three years, um, but uh, or two and a half years, are really uh, now kind of becoming more central uh, to to the narrative. Um, a lot of talk about inflation. Uh, you know, and what that means and and whatnot as well. So uh, I think that was kind of the overwhelming takeaway. Uh, vol, pe vol people are confused by vol more than ever, uh, which I think is a great opportunity. And I think, you know, vol, as you and I were talking about, has done uh, really some unique things relative to history. And uh, everybody's waiting for it to mean revert to where it was. And I think uh, it's not going to be that easy. Um uh, you know, we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. No, that that's absolutely true. And uh, and I, I agree with you with some of the topics you just uh, talked about on my travels. That's certainly also what I come across. And also I think people are just confused about the whole fixed income space and bonds. And I know we're going to dive into that uh, as well. Before we do, as usual, let me just quickly mention a couple of things about trend following. Um, partly because it is, we're just recording in the uh, first couple of days of uh, November. Can't believe it's already in November. And so October just finished, and um, you know, of course, the uh, the outbreak uh, of of another war in the Middle East, tragic, was really something that um, you know had an impact, I think, on on trend following performance. Uh, I would say it's kind of flat to down for the month of October. Uh, main correction in performance coming from energy prices that took a dive and global equities that continues to um, slowly correct, even though the last couple of days have been uh, a bit better. 
many sectors were pretty uh, uninspiring, uh, frankly, uh, and only small gains or losses. Uh, and as I said, the industry looks like it's overall pretty flattish, actually, heading into the last final stretch of the year. So we'll see how it all ends up. My own trend barometer finished uh, the month and actually also, I think, yesterday uh, at 41. That suggests a neutral to weak reading. Um, so that, I think, is in line with the numbers I'm going to quote now because the BTOP50 index was down 0.71 for the month of October, up still 1.78 for the year. SOCGEN CTA index down 1.2%, but up uh, 0.57 for the year. SOCGEN trend down 9 basis points. Um, looks a bit low. Anyways, probably right. Um, and up 86 basis points for the year. And the SOCGEN sh- uh, short-term traders index uh, down 47 basis points of 1.35. Although when I look at these numbers, I'm not entirely sure if I typed something, um, mistyped them. Anyways, what I didn't mistype was that the MSCI world was down almost 3% for the month, up 6.38% for the year. And the world government bond index down another 71 basis points, um, not having a great year either this year. And the S&P 500 down 2.1% and still up 10.69% for the year. All right, with that uh, out of the way, let's move on to the questions. First question comes from Tim. Tim writes, welcome back from your well-deserved holiday. For your conversation with Jim, I would be interested in getting his insights on the following. The firm I work for runs a systematic risk premium strategy with a trend-following bias. Hence, equity market corrections and risk-off periods in general can be profitable for the strategy depending on how these turn out in terms of speed and length. Since we are medium-term in frequency, like most CTAs, a significant tail risk for us is that fast short-term systems, uh, short-term movement, sorry, against the underlying trend. The question then is, what systematic strategies would GEM consider suitable for hedging this type of risk and at what cost? I'm asking this question in light of the developments that took place uh, post-COVID, when many investment banks offered uh, newly tailored defensive slash tail hedge strategies that were supposed to protect against major equity drawdowns while not being as expensive as purchasing put options. The range of products was uh, wide, uh, with strategies based on correction, variance, dispersion, uh, etc. Unfortunately, many of these products were over-optimized to show good hypothetical performance during COVID, uh, but most of them failed to protect uh, subsequently in 2022. Many thanks in regards, Tim. Um, okay, well, I know nothing about these products. Um, hopefully, you know a little bit, uh, Jim, what Tim is referring to, uh, referring to, and maybe you have a few comments yeah, on that. So I think, um, I think the idea here is that uh, you know you can digest premium, right? Hedge it with other forms, right? This is essentially warehousing risk that happens all the time. There's edge and ways to do this. They can be profitable strategies and they can even perform quite well as they did last year, right? Into a decline. If vol doesn't, you know, perform particularly well on a fixed strike basis. And, and so this is the general basis of these premia strat, these, you know, systematic risk premia strategies. Um, uh, the problem is they have a tail. Uh, this is, you know, selling vol at the end of the day. And, and, uh, and the question is, how do we, uh, hedge this tail without paying a lot of money. Um, you know, uh, at the end of the day, the answer is, I think uh, I can attribute this to Chris Cole or Corey Hofstein. They both said the same thing. You know, risk cannot be 
you can't destroy risk. You can only, uh, you know, uh, change its shape, uh, change where it is, right? It can only be transformed, I believe. And so I think that's true, right? There is a, there is a different parts of the distribution that you're, um, you are subjecting yourself to uh, in time and space uh, whenever you harvest risk premia. And if you're trying to get a tail, not all tails are the same. Everybody wants to think in two dimensions, up and down. What will hedge my tail? Well, there's not one tail. There's different parts of the tail. And and uh, what you want uh, and what you're willing to pay is a function of that. Now, some parts of the tail are more expensive relative to their uh, output uh, in those scenarios. Um, uh, you know, there's also probably you have to think about probability. Are, are the you know when I say expensive, expensive is two two parts. One, it's uh, relative to other things. Statically, is it more expensive? Um, and the other part is relative to its actual predicted uh, probabilities, right? And uh, the reality is um, both of those things can be edges. If you can really look in relative value space and say, this is cheaper, this is more expensive, you have an edge. And if you can also say, hey, the probabilities of this are less likely than people expect or more likely than people expect, then you can also have an edge. And I think the key is to find ways to take advantage of those two things. There are generally not systematic ways to just do that. You need systems and you need expertise. Uh, and so I can't sit here and just say, hey, if you just go by X puts, now there are trends to this. I could give you general tendencies, but those things change over time. And the reality is that, uh, you know, up until more recently, gamma is a more, uh, you know, there's a reason theoretically that, that long-term capital management was created. The long-term capital management was created because theoretically long-term skew and vol is overvalued relative to short-term. Um, and gamma pays more than Vega over the long run um, and is more consistent. Um, and so that's generally been a structural way to, to do this is some people uh, sell calendars and buy extra units and premium neutral and do things like this to cover their tail. The problem with that is exactly what happened to long-term capital management is that there's a liquidity premium and that liquidity premium uh, works and works and works. And then at some point has the potential to, you know, long dated things can go anywhere. And there's some risk to that in the interim. Uh, and you have to kind of be able to size appropriately and uh, manage position. So um, I know that was a lot of hedging, if you will, uh, to the answer. But I think the point is it's it's complicated. It's complicated. And, you know, just sitting listening to you, uh, that, and this might come out as a super naive question, actually. Um, anyways, you know, I come from a world where it's very science-driven, right? The trend-following world is very science-driven. Um, but I wonder, I mean, could you say that actually when, when we talk about tail hedging and all of that stuff, those type of strategies, it really is more of an art than it is a science, and it is very hard to come out with these purely systematic approaches to tail hedging. I would qualify as it is a science, but it is a com more complex science. Uh, and, I, and, and, uh, and, and then when you have something that is incredibly complex, it is hard to model all of the factors or at least uh, explain them in, in two dimensions, right? We're talking about a very multidimensional question. Now, you can... It, it, because it's complex, there are more opportunities as well. And, and if you have uh, the ability to manage the math and the science, 
Um, there are uh, great things to do. But I guess my point here is if you're looking at a cleanly packaged ETF with a very clear, simple rules-based strategy, good luck. Um, and, and uh, you know, that we're dealing with items that are non, non-linear and uh, multidimensional. Um, and uh, there are trends that you can take advantage of that will do broadly better than others, but that does not mean they will consistently in all scenarios uh, perform as such. Okay. I think that's perfect. All right. One more question, and then we dive into your uh, incredibly exciting uh, topics. Um, and it's a question from Rick. Rick has been very patient because I think he sent in the question quite a long time ago. Um, and he wrote, um, hi, Nils, looking forward to the next TTU with Jim. If possible, would you ask him if he views the Jan 24 OPEX as a possible inflection point to the downside? Thanks so much. Yeah, I've actually been pretty vocal about this. I've even th- circled a date on people's calendar. To my own detriment, I do this sometimes because there's reflexivity in the market. January 17th, I've circled as a very important date if, and this is the key, conditionally, um, we do get a bounce back here into the end of the year. Um, to be clear, I also circled November 1st as a date uh, for the beginning of that uh, rally inflection, which was pretty spot on. Um, and, uh, you know, I also highlighted that it could very likely be a violent move off of an area somewhere between 4,100 and 4,150. So these numbers matter. And there is a reason that we point these out. I, I would pay attention to it. Um, uh, markets are reflexive and, uh, and not just from a, and we'll get into this with the topics, but not just from a structural perspective, right? This is what Bonna and Charm, this is the dealers taking on positions and then, forcing a reflexive outcome that we've talked about. Uh, These structural flows get stronger going into the end of the year here, but also markets are reflexive from a macro perspective. Policymakers respond to markets. Um, And that's what we're seeing incrementally here from the Fed, from the Treasury into the end of the year. Um, So the more risks there are, the more the Fed tries to dampen volatility, that the more the Treasury tries to manage it. And that's particularly true going into the end of the year as well, because there's other factors in the end of the year that can accelerate and cause problems. It's an important inflection point, center of kind of gravity, if you will. And and uh, and so that reflexivity of, of market factors, and we'll get into this a little bit later in the show, and what what the what the fundamentals are uh, flows are doing, paired with all the seasonal strong structural flows that are just systematic um, relative to conditional probabilities that happen in the market. Um, are likely, as I mentioned, to drive positive flows here into not only the end of the year, but into January 17th specifically, because a lot of those flows are January 1st. And then you have a very strong uh, seasonal buyback to Vaughn and Charm flows into that January uh, OPEX, and, and which should support, continue to support it and maintain that momentum until really kind of that window. And, and this is why February... Uh, last back half of January, and then February is actually the second worst month um, uh, of, uh, seasonally. And it's really a function of the positive flows that come before it more than it is the negative things that are coming. But removal of positive flows in the context of negative flows is very negative, right? And so so that January 17th date, which is the Wednesday expiration of uh, OPEX, before that Gen OPEX, I would highlight as a very important time if we we do get the seasonal positive flows here that I think we are going to, uh, that we are beginning to get. You can see it. We've had a you know more than a five percent rally in three days. Um, uh, you know that that is a very important date and, and period to highlight if we can get that positive move. 
Yeah, no, great. Well done. Good good, good call on that, uh, Jim. Another one. Uh, all right. Well, let's dive in. Um, I think the first part will, you kind of label macro, uh, which is something you and I love to uh, talk about. Uh, you also kind of labeled it, you know, what's new. And so I'll kind of let you lead uh, with that and then we kind of see where we go with that. I have a couple of things I wanted to ask you, but... Um, why don't you talk about what you think might have changed or what's new in the macro space? And this will dovetail right into what we were just talking about, right? So policymakers are reflexive and, um, you know, we had a 12%, didn't feel that violent, right? Um, but we had a 12% pullback off the highs um, uh, over the course of the last kind of month and a half until recently. And, uh, you know, importantly, bonds started to experience some serious volatility and that was primary driving factor, I would say. Um, actually, I would say it's a it's a secondary factor in the sense that it's not really the bond yields that's the problem. That's how people talk about it on CNBC and whatever. It's actually the thing causing the bond yields to go higher, which is the amount of issuance uh, that's happening and the liquidity draw that that's pulling out of the markets that's affecting supply and demand, not just in the bond market, but in the stock market as well. And uh, again, that's an important distinction because I think people will just think, oh, numbers, like the yield's going higher, so that's bad for liquidity. No, actually, what's bad for liquidity is that, that the treasury is issuing so much paper and there's not enough liquidity to support it. And that money has to get come out of the market broadly. And how does that come out? Well, if yields do go up and uh, you know somebody has to take the other side of that, if they're willing to, to take uh, 10 year at 5%, uh, they need to make room for that on their 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 balance sheet and maybe they need to sell some equities or lighten up or, or maybe instead of buying equities they're buying bonds um so so all of this um uh, creates a liquidity draw and it's been significant we talked about this by the way months ago that this was coming it's just you had to kind of see it happen and 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 sure enough uh, eventually as always happens uh the you know it keeps going and then it starts to move faster right and, and at the end of those those yields really started to move um, in a seven-day period, uh, the ten-year went from um, 4.5 to over to 5.05. Right, um, that is an incredible move uh, in speed. And and uh, in the last three days uh, or four days, we've seen it go from that 5.05 back down to 4.65. Um, so this is incredibly uh, kind of volatile price action. What's supposed to be the most liquid market in the world, right? Um, so reason for some a little bit of concern i think for policymakers um uh, especially when it was starting to kind of break out fast to those yields were starting to break out fast the upside um you know you'd hate to see a air pocket 505 to five and a half um you know and, and that given the speed of moves uh you know that that's a real concern um so that, that those are the, the the major kind of uh you know again it's not that the 12 percent drawdown in the market's a huge deal it's not that a um that a kind of you know, 60 basis point move and and yields over the course of a month is a is a huge deal. It's the volatility, it's the the liquidity uh, picture and the concerns that come with that, particularly as you get into the end of the year. Why is the end of the year? Why is this seasonality part important? Regulatorily, banks and entities have to have a certain amount of capital on their books on December 31st. And so if the liquidity picture gets bad the next month, you have a real pocket of liquidity where people a don't want to come in and uh, you know pl- provide liquidity, but B that there's a draw on uh, you know on liquidity broadly coming back into uh, uh, you know balance sheets, 
and that can create an even bigger liquidity issue, right? So, so the Fed and Treasury are are should be on alert uh, more than usual during that period, and then uh, and it doesn't help then now to the the part that's probably geopolitically this is a much slower moving thing. This is not a one two month thing, but a very important development. A new front on World War III, I'd call it. I know that sounds bombastic, but that's what it is. And I don't think people are talking enough about that. You know, uh, the Hamas-Israel piece is not uh, independent uh, kind of activity that's happening in, in a part of the world. Um, you know, obviously, it goes without saying Iran is backing Hamas um, in this endeavor. And Iran is very vocally a part of a, a group, which is Russia and China. Um, you know, um, trying to to exert leverage, and they're doing it because uh, there are there's another front going on, Russia, Ukraine, and then uh, you know, in my opinion, you know, there there is a potential front coming, um, you know, further east, um, and I think people know what I'm talking about there. So this is a stretching of resources, a challenging and testing of boundaries uh, by a much bigger set of uh, entities, and this is a proxy war much like Russia-Ukraine is a proxy war. And explicitly, the last thing I'll say about this geopolitical piece is it is a very strategic move, too. It is not just opening a new front. If you have a coming world war broadly, um, you are trying to take entities that are on one side and really convince them to be on another. And um, nowhere is that uh, are there entities more walking that line that are easier to win over to the Russia-China Iran front than in the Middle East. And nothing is more of a lightning rod than the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, particularly somewhere that's true to my heart, which is Turkey, and another one, which is very important for commodity reasons, which is Saudi Arabia. These are two very important allies in that part of the world to the West, and they are entities that are now very much against what's happening um, in Gaza. And if you were to listen to the, you, if you saw the crowds in Istanbul, right, um, uh, protesting what, what Israel is doing, I'm, this is not a, by the way, I, I have very different views on, on a lot of these things. So I want to make sure this is not a, an argument of what should or should not be happening. This is simply power and struggle. And I want to be clear, uh, you know, this is an effective means to separate or at least bring question into the alignment of Turkey and Saudi Arabia with the West. And that is a major problem. Honestly, uh, they are, I, I believe Israel's politically taking the bait here in something that they should not be doing. And I think the U.S. is aware of that and trying to talk them down a bit, but we will see. We will see. Anyway, so the geopolitical piece is important. I know it's interesting. We could talk a lot about geopolitics. We don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole. And that does not matter as much for the one month, two month predictions of what will happen to markets in the very short term, but it does matter if we're starting to think, okay, things are heating up a bit. These are strategic moves. Why are these strategic moves being made now? What does that mean for timelines on other fronts and other bigger conflicts? What does that mean for an acceleration of what we, we've said is, is coming, which is this broad geopolitical conflict? Um, but those things move much slower and the markets react to those things on much slower timeframes. I, uh, on a personal note, I uh, I very much agree with you uh, in terms of the importance uh, of these events and uh, the fear of where these could uh, where this could go, and it's actually not just the countries that you uh, talk about that is starting to uh, where you start to see cracks even within Europe, uh, you start to see cracks in terms of alliances, and so 
this is something that you and I will end up talking more about uh, on the Global Macro Series. I'm sure we need to find a few people to come in and and help us uh, digest and navigate uh, some of these things. Um, but I wanted to I wanted to pick up on some of the things you said before we got to the geopolitics. A couple of things you talked a lot about uh, the, uh, the the situation in 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 uh, in bonds. Um, now we we talk a lot about the VIX. We don't hear much about the move index, which is the equivalent for the uh, for the bond markets. Um, I don't follow the move index, but is it behaving the way it should, so to speak? Because we know that there has been a bit of a decoupling between what the VIX has done and what the S and P has done. Um, but is the move index actually behaving as it should? A lot of people trading it. Can you? I don't even know how you would trade it. So, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so bond volatility has, as we mentioned, has been relatively insane on a realized basis and in an implied on an implied basis, it's also um, quite strong. Yes, things are moving much more in line realized versus implied than maybe on the equity side. Um, we highlighted this about a year ago. You and I talked about it at some point. I know. Um, about how during inflationary regimes, different volatility performs very differently. Um, and uh, if you're in a period of non-inflation, vol tends to be correlated because things are much more about cyclical realities. Um, but in, in secularly inflationary periods, you get real breakdowns and real changes. We are entering a period without going back into the whole thesis, right, of broader geopolitical strife, um, uh, comp- competition, uh, as opposed to cooperation, that leads to more uh, some pressures and commodities, uh, some some breakdowns in, in in certain types of businesses. It causes more rotation. So all of these things lead to higher volatility historically. And there's lots of power by the Federal Reserve broadly because the Fed's in a box. It has a dual mandate that it's struggling with now. Um, and questions of uh, dollar strength, dollar weakness come into in, in these geopolitical. So during these times, FX uh, rates, precious metals. All of these things tend to get incredibly more volatile, um, and, the, and not just more volatile, but the vol of all increases on them as well. Whereas certain assets, ironically, get more vol dampened than you would expect. So uh, we said this about oil a while back when oil vol went explode exploded on an implied basis, and gold was very cheap. I don't know if you remember that, and uh, and we were very vocal that gold vol was too cheap for that reason, but oil vol was actually too expensive. And sure enough, oil vol has actually kind of settled in a bit and we continue to see this put that it's not a very, uh, uh, you know, we're not getting convex moves to the upside. We're getting more kind of choppy sideways action because OPEC and other entities that have power are able to underpin price um, and exert power that it go- so that it kind of continues the trend higher. But broadly, it is not a, a volatile move um, higher. But whereas gold is starting to act really kind of more volatile and vol is increasing uh, from those lows. So we, we highlighted this uh, over a year ago, and this is what happens. Um, and so to your point, rates vol is, yes, it's disjointed from uh, uh, equity vol. And by the way, equity vol does very broadly, very poorly on a on a medium to long-term basis. Uh, we highlighted 68 to 82. Market went nowhere for 14 years. That's not very volatile on a long-term basis. Yes, there were some incremental short-term vol in between, and there's more disjointed kind of moves. So, so uh, you know, term structure should broadly broadly change but but equity vol um it makes broad sense that it would not be dramatically higher uh, if anything a bit lower um but disjointed from rates vol and and fx vol and other other vol that people have not thought as much about in terms of hedges and probably should be 
Absolutely. I want to, uh, again, before we leave, kind of fully the global macro, but obviously also tied into the fixed income uh, side. Um, I wanted also to hear your opinion about something that I uh, I heard from uh, our friend uh, Grant Williams on his uh, one of his latest episodes with James Aitken and, um, and Bill Fleckenstein. And... I think this is uh, well. First, there's two th- there's two things that really stood out f- for me in that conversation, um, and we probably you and I should get Grant back and and talk about this. One is that I think James Aitken, who has you know sounds like incredibly smart every time I, I listen to him, was where he was saying you know a lot of the stuff that I've sort of thought or believed in for the last couple of years, I really need to unlearn that. It, things are just not playing out the way uh, they should, and there are probably some reasons, and I, I'm not going to go into that side. But the other thing they talked about, which I actually think is quite interesting, and that is this risk of Japan actually going into their own rate-hiking cycle, and what that might do and not least in terms of uh, who's going to be the buyers of all these treasuries that we're going to be issuing and so on and so forth. So is is this something that you've kind of thought about as well in terms of what could the next leg be? And even though we, I think we both, at some point, the US bonds are going to get a break and they're not going to continue down forever, right? At some point, at least for a while. But then there's this joker of Japan, if, and if they kind of um, start doing their thing, that might put pressure on at least yields staying high for a lot longer, not just for longer, but for a lot longer than people might um, might expect. Would it bring up a very, I think, important mental model on on this? We've talked a lot about the the deglobalization and the the geopolitical uh, issues that come with protectionism, which is a, a cousin of populism, right? We're getting more protectionism and more geopolitical strife and, strife and competition. That, importantly, though, extends to liquidity. And when you're talking about big liquidity, like, you know, borrowing issuance of trillions of dollars of debt, when we're in a cooperative world and China and Japan can, can fund debts themselves and we're more stable and, and cooperative, Liquidity is great. But when that starts to break down, you can be fine for a while. But the tail on liquidity there, like, you know, who's going to provide that liquidity when there's very few that are willing to um, really becomes a bigger concern. And I think that's what you're essentially highlighting, right? Um, it's not just Japan. Japan is kind of a um, a vassal. I don't know if that's how many Japanese people on here will hate that. But like, it, it is a it's a smaller economy relative to, let's say, the U.S. and uh, its ability to keep uh, its rates down as it was is a function of of the power of the West and its support of Japan to a great extent. So these are not separate entities, is my point. And the liquidity uh, question is broadly a a problem across the board. And uh, but it would make sense that uh, in particular, Japan, which has gone kind of the furthest negative, right? Um, we'll have the most room to kind of normalize in a scenario where things get ugly. Um, I actually, uh, at C- the CBOs RMC conference where I was at several weeks ago, um, met, met up with our friend David Drudge. And he and I had a, had a lot of great conversations, um, and the topic of Japan came up multiple times. He is very involved in Japan and is of the opinion that uh, this is, this, you know, this is, uh, we're pushing on a string. This is going to be 
not pretty, you know, hard to say when, but at some point, uh, it just has to normalize. I agree. The pressures and the incentives are there such that unless we unwind this kind of realities that we're seeing in terms of geopolitical strife and, and uh, you know, broad competition globally, um, that is going to normalize at some point. And I do think that many people are seeing that. The question is, when people are seeing it, is that, you know, how will it transpire? Will it be in steps? Uh, how, how long will it take to transpire? Those are questions that are harder to answer, but um, but agree with you. Yeah. Maybe as a final point before we leave uh, bonds for a while, at least one thing that I think people may not be so familiar with, of course, uh, for the longest time, we've always thought about bonds being uh, the safest assets and, and so on and so forth. You highlighted that actually volatility in fixed income markets are now higher than in the stocks. Uh, the Bloom, Bloomberg also had an article out on the... 22nd of October, uh, talking about that. But there's one statistics uh, or little analysis that I did, which I thought was quite interesting as well. And that is just if you take the uh, the max drawdown of different asset classes and you divide it by the annualized volatility. Because again, I mean, you want the lowest ratio as possible, so the, 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 the smallest drawdown. Um, but what you find is that bonds just blow out everything else. Um, stocks trend followers, CTAs, whatever, so much more, um, you know, downside uh, volatility, so to speak, uh, compared to its uh, annualized volatility. And this is always the danger, that things that may look safe uh, turns out not to be so. And I think what we will find, and uh, and, and I actually believe you and I uh, completely agree on this, because we've been talking about this for a while, and that is we are probably heading towards a world where lots of investors are completely wrongly positioned. They're simply positioned for the world that was, not realizing the world we're heading into. And and that will have major consequences in many financial markets. So, um, so yeah, so I don't think our conversations yeah. are... Yeah, I would coming. highlight two things to that real quick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One, um, people come to me all the time and say, you know, how am I supposed to make money in this world? Like, this seems impossible. But the problem is not that there's not, like, there's more opportunity than ever to make money, right? There is like, we're in a regime change. If you want to, if you want to make money, like, this is what you want. You want new opportunities and, and things that are mispriced. And there's tons of that everywhere. But you have to get out of this kind of prescriptive, like, this is 60-40 is the way things work and how you make money. And it's so hard because it was so simple. And everybody did the same thing without any education for so long and thought was taught, like indoctrinated that this is how you invest. It's low cost, zero fees, buy and hold, buy the dip. And it doesn't really, you know, it's based on a lot of assumptions that held true for some time for structural reasons that we understand. So I, I just think that, you know, everybody's got to kind of be willing to look outside the box a little bit and say, okay. Um, there are other opportunities that are significant. We just need to kind of stop trying to do the same thing over and over again. That's one. And then, you know, uh, two, I, th I think that, you know, the reality is geopolitical uh, realities are such that we are going to get uh, dramatically more, um, uh, you know, not only is the, is the system going to be different, but there's going to be real tales. You can't, uh, you know, the, the, the Fed, uh, Japanese Central Bank, JGB, like everybody has compressed volatility. What do we say? You can't get rid of volatility. You can only transform it. And so what's happened is we've transformed it uh, in the bond market to very low vol, but with a really fat tail. And that's what 
you're essentially asking about with Japan Central Bank is they, you know, incorrectly, uh, overly suppress vol to a point where things have gotten to a price and area that when it does break, uh, the normalization is going to be dramatic. And I think that's true globally for bonds. Um, and I think the volatility itself is starting to expand to adjust for that. Um, and hopefully the volatility expands more before the tail comes. Uh, so at least those ratios are a little bit more in line than what we've seen historically. Yeah, no, absolutely. You you have a section in your topics uh, where you talk about markets are re reflexive, and we've talked about that kind of already, but I want to maybe um, spin it in a slightly different way uh, and maybe a little bit towards the... Um, uh, just a comment, maybe a thought. I'd love to hear your your reaction to it. Uh, in terms of uh, another topic that we speak a lot about, which is inflation, which kind of underpins the whole uh, idea of where interest rates uh, uh, may go. And I think maybe what I'm, I'm sure many people have thought about by now, but um, maybe not a lot of the the people sort of uh, who go about their own day to day um, in in terms of investing. And that is when you have all these global conflicts that we now have, and as you point out, there could be more, it puts an enormous amount of pressure on spending on military. Lots of this is just pure deficit spending, especially in the US, right? But probably in a lot of countries. And I, I wonder whether that's additional spending uh, is simply going to be what, to a large extent will underpin inflation and keep it high and simply not allow central banks to do what they uh, had hoped for, which because they didn't know what was going to happen in, say, the Middle East. They don't know what's going to happen next if another conflict breaks out. So all of their projections, which, by the way, rarely uh, holds up anyways, but but all of those project projections could be thrown out of the window, potentially, if we just continue to see this demand for military spending? We highlighted this two years ago. I keep saying that, those things, but we did. We said, look, it, everybody was talking about fiscal two and a half years ago. Oh, fiscal's driving this inflation. And, and the comment was, look back at the 70s. Yes, fiscal was part of it. But the bigger story is not just fiscal. It is the populism that's driving the fiscal. It's the populism that's driving protectionism and deglobalization, which is then causing more global conflict and more investment and war. It's the, it's, the, it's the populism that's driving that protectionism and that's driving entities like OPEC to put more pressure on commodities. If you look at the 70s, you'll, you know, online you Google what caused inflation, you'll hear three independent things. People will say fiscal spending from the Great Society program, uh, the Vietnam War and geopolitical uh, wars, and, and three, the OPEC crisis. They're all the same thing. They're all the same thing. And to my point, to, your, to, to what you're saying, uh, you know, the war, the funding of wars is going to be a major driver to more fiscal, right? It's their cost to it. These are, these are, and these things are stimulative, but they're also very inflationary. And there has to be more issuance to cover it, which is going to mean yields go higher, which is a liquidity draw on markets. These are all related. They're all the same thing. Um, and I think that's the thing that policymakers and, you know, they're very, rarely spoken about really and understood um but a hundred percent there's a reason that the echoes are so similar to the past um and uh and i'll make one last important note there Niels, is the funding of wars is actually 
not only uh, likely given the, the geopolitical issues, but it actually will allow for the continuation because people will pay for wars. This goal may not be popular at some point. People may say, whoa, stop spending. You're spending too much on discretionary things. War is not considered discretionary. War is essential. Uh, you know, defense is essential, I guess I should say. And, and so that is what happened in the 70s, even though there was a broad uh, understanding pretty early politically, there was lots of fights over the Great Society program. Um, you know, you can look back at it. Fiscal continued through all kinds of election cycles because of the Vietnam War and broadly the support of that war. And you can look back to, you know, World War II as a similar analogy as well. All right, we have two major topics we want to discuss before we wrap up. Um, both very interesting. Uh, the first one is flow, something that you always bring up. You are the maestro of um, explaining this so that we all understand it. Um, we've kind of touched upon it a little bit already, but let's uh, just make sure that we get um, sort of your full take on 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 the flow side of things as we head it, into year end. Yeah, these and are things I've talked about important. before. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I, I'll try and be quicker about it. But I do yeah, think because you made. I know you mentioned a little bit about Thanksgiving. I know you mentioned a little bit about a couple, some holidays coming up. Yeah, there's a couple nuances which I think I haven't highlighted enough, which I would like to highlight. Uh, but first and foremost. Uh, seasonality is not a magical construct, right? We, we've talked about this, uh, particularly this no these early January period, this, you know, call it two and a half month period, which is a pretty long, big part of the year. There's a reason it's structurally more positive and particularly certain windows of it that are, that are structurally more positive. One, uh, volume weighted time drops dramatically. Um, and what do I mean by volume weighted time? There's just less trading going on during these times. There's more holidays. There's more people not participating in markets. Uh, there are, you know, Thursday's a official holiday for Thanksgiving in the U.S., uh, you know, uh, but the Friday does, it's essentially a holiday and nobody's here. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, things like that Christmas, yeah, it's one day as, as, far, as far as all day, but guess what? That whole week is dead. Um, and so if you look at volume weighted time to try and adjust, you know, uh, you know, uh, for this dramatically less, um, and, and I think that's an important distinction. Um, uh, not just that, but they, this is an important thing I haven't really highlighted I talk about kind of different windows where there's more risk, right? And we see this. There's a reason, you know, if you if you can't see it now, like you're you're not paying attention, right? After expiration, big expirations, you get significant different moves in markets and there's more risk during certain periods. People are waking up to this. These windows tend to, the, the windows of weakness tend to be after big structured product uh, expirations, uh, you know, um, and and it it's important that these biggest holidays or the vacuum of time and, and trading happens after these OPEXs, um, and we haven't really highlighted that, but Thanksgiving is directly after November op OPEX, right? It's this week where there should be generally a risky week, but there's no, there's nobody trading. People are on vacation, so we accelerate through kind of this risky period. Christmas, same thing. It's right after December OPEX, right? Um, and and then you know, and a week later we have January, you know, the the um, uh, New Year's Day, um, and so those big holidays are actually interestingly even more. Uh, ball compressing, even more positive for markets um, because of where they're situated. I know that sounds like, why would that matter? That sounds insane. If the holiday was two weeks earlier, would it really matter? Yeah, it would. Uh, because the way it lines up with structured flows is important. And that dynamic is very important. Um, importantly, importantly, too, massive open interest in December OPEX and January OPEX. Um, why? In, in, in the uh, indexes, 
broadly, people hedge at the end of the year. These are the uh, options that are are listed as leaps years in advance that, that have tons of open interest and that are big structured hedges. Uh, structured products are therefore tied to these expirations as well. Um, December monthly expiration is the biggest. You have a December end of year expiration, which tends to be big. big. And then in single list, historically, January has been the biggest expiration. Um, and, and we can get into kind of all the reasons why that developed that way or why it is, but it's still a major, major expiration right at that January 24. So all of this open interest and importantly skew, all the puts in the market there um, uh, are, are priced high. Uh, dealers are short them. And so as those disappear, if we do not get a volatile event, which we have kind of managed it here going through October, all of a sudden that starts to come out of the market and the hedges have to be bought back. So time gets compressed. Uh, the Where time gets compressed is softer. The amount of buyback is much bigger because these are important end-of-year expirations. This is all from the OPEX and flow side. And then uh, on top of that, we have all the structured product issuance that's new, that's been there you know, around this next last year or two, um, that's really compressing and holding things together. So it's it's limiting, limiting the odds of a bigger move that's going to disrupt these natural structural effects. And then lastly, end of the year flows, the market's now up. If the market continues, there's a momentum factor here, continues to be relatively strong and hang in there. Time is not a bear's friend, I've said. Why? Because there's a natural momentum factor higher. And the more momentum there is at the end of the year, there's more collateral to reinvest at the end of the year. And that is a big amount of flows. Again, we're talking trillions of dollars of flows that hit January 1st, new entities going, putting money to work and people see that coming. So end of the year, Santa Claus tends to be strong when that's the case. And the January effect tends to be strong. Those things are not a coincidence. So that's the flows picture. Um, uh, you know, very, very positive for risk here if things continue to hang in, which they obviously, people are picking up on what I've been saying and buying um, the indexes the last several days. Okay, well, the last uh, topic will be interesting and and fun, I hope, um, because it is kind of your takeaways from the recent CBOE uh, RMC conference, uh, which of course took place in a very exotic place where there was a Formula One race going on recently in the U.S., so uh, I don't know how much of the details you're able to share, but I would love to uh, hear as much as possible from from uh, from what you took away and, and maybe some of the people you spoke to and the topics discussed, um, because clearly there were a big group of smart people uh, at the same time. Yeah, this is this is like the premier conference for derivatives um, and, and and vol, you know specifically uh globally i would say uh the SIBO, uh it, it's smaller uh, in the sense that it's not maybe as big a reach as some other uh vol conferences but it really is a who's who in terms of uh you know proprietary trading firms entities that are are really in the weeds and trade derivatives uh, provide liquidity for derivatives um uh so it, it is uh it really is the the gold standard for kind of thinking about uh, what's next and and seeing, um, you know, who's doing what in the space. Um, I was fortunate to be asked to be on a, a panel of about 15 uh, people to discuss uh, new products of the SIBO for idea generation, as well as working on details of how products should work and, and problems that are, they're maybe facing. That was really um, incredible. Again, a, a who's who in that room um, of, of people who uh, are pra practitioners and, and entities leading the charge on a lot of these products. 
Um, that was fascinating. A lot of discussion about the dispersion index um, that 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 the SIBO has released in, in dispersion broadly. Other products they they're looking about, uh, looking at, and thinking about um, uh, the dispersion index. It will have futures coming. They announced that in that that small room, and then then more publicly later in the conference. Um, so futures futures uh, options on futures, all of those will be coming um, for the dispersion index. I think that is a particularly important you know thing development in markets not because it allows people who are practitioners to do dispersion as much, but because it, it provides now access for more structured products and ETFs and other entities that can now more systematically um, deploy these strategies and provide broad market liquidity into these strategies as opposed to just niche players who have access and, um, uh, and whatnot. And given the size of the dispersion trade and the imbalance of the liquidity that you and I have talked about, both from structured products and the bidding of indexes, Right, but also from the broad increase of volatility in the single list for more idiosyncratic risk, uh, you know this is what's driven this historic dispersion that we've been seeing—an a, a imbalance of supply and demand. Different, you know, from the index uh, center to and the and constituents on the other end, providing liquidity there and uh, and allowing access for broad assets will uh, be a very important, important and interesting dynamic as it uh, transpires uh, to market structure. And I think that's a critical uh, takeaway. Um, I will say there's still a lot of evolution. This is not going to happen overnight. Uh, one of my big takeaways was that the index is is not Vega neutral. It's a long Vega index. Um, they did that on purpose so it would be more mean reverting and the number would make more kind of sense to the average person. And, and it's meant to be an index and, and more of an indicator at first, and then they'll put products on it. But as a deploying of the dispersion strategy, it's not actually uh, the proper structured to deploy the dispersion strategy per se, because it's not vague and neutral. Uh, my guess is, and some of the input that I gave and other people gave, that they really need to launch a a long, you know, a, a vague and neutral version at some point. Um, uh, we understand that that will drift and that there'll be, um, you know, other, other issues uh, for those products. But I think that's what the world really needs and wants. Um, if not, there'll be innovation outside of the exchanges to kind of, um, I'm sure, uh, deploy a more vague and neutral version of the dispersion index. But Anyway, so that was very interesting, um, you know, the staying power of dispersion and why, you know, what I've been talking about now for years about why it's happening has become a little bit more uh, talked about for the first time at, the, at these conferences. And I think that is becoming a more uh, central to the zeitgeist. People are waking up to the fact that dispersion is working uh, for certain reasons uh, based on structural supply and demand imbalances. This is not something even at those co at those conferences that was broadly understood or talked about, which I thought was very interesting. It's entering the zeitgeist. Uh, I think those were all very interesting topics as it relates to dispersion. There were a lot of other issues. Um, our guy, uh, David Dredge, again, got up and he spoke at the conference. I thought that was one of the better, as per usual, one of the better um, uh, speeches that were given. He gave real historical, big picture context to several things. One, um, really talked about uh, how vol broadly has been compressed relative to, this kind of touches on what we were talking about earlier, uh, relative to, uh, you know, 800, he was looking at 800 years of, uh, of history, uh, looking at, uh, which I always love. He goes, he goes really deep when he looks at these things, you know, and he was looking at British records that they still have going back 800 years. Um, and volatility of assets was dramatically higher across all scenarios, except for maybe one period, 20 year period in the uh, late 1800s, which was maybe, uh, related, um, you know, the last 20 years up until two years ago was, uh, across assets, uh, the lowest volatility that we've seen. And that was a really, really interesting kind of historical point. Um, we're starting to see some mean reversion to higher levels. Uh, and his 
prediction is that uh, that that should continue to be the case, particularly if interest rates stay higher. Because you look at when interest rates and sorry, inflation is higher. When you look at those periods, uh, vol tends to be also considerably higher. And again, we're not just talking about equity vol; we're really talking about rates vol. We're talking about uh, the, you know again the move index that we highlighted, other things um, uh, broadly. But 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 that's that's where the the volatility tends to be higher. So that was an interesting look. He also really highlighted something that he talks a lot about, and I've heard, um, you know, which uh, is an incredible point that the majority of, of uh, the returns um, in markets um, uh, can be defined by simply what happens to the top 10% of outcomes and what happens to the bottom 10% of outcomes um, in, in equity markets um, and, and markets writ large. Um, if you take those two out of the uh, equation, uh, you uh, or emphasize one. You take one out and you add the other one in. Uh, the 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 performance goes to dramatically negative or 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 you know ten x positive um, performance. And and he brings that up as a as a to highlight um, the importance of of the tails and hedging the tails and and not only hedging them like making sure the worst case scenarios are well hedged. But also making sure that when a positive occurrence happens, that you capture it, or maybe even uh, do you know capture an even bigger amount during those moves. Those tails are incredibly undervalued to the importance of a portfolio, um, and this being a risk management conference, uh, important uh, uh, you know thing to highlight. Uh, he highlighted several ways to take advantage of that, but I think the big takeaway, and again, it's hard to express how how dramatic the differences are if you. You know, take the that that ten percent of occurrences out or in to the portfolio, but it's it's pretty um, impressive when you look at it. I'm happy that he has. I know on on David Drudge's uh, website, uh, he has the actual presentation on there, so I recommend that people maybe go take a look at that um, if they're interested. Lastly, uh, two more things actually. I'll say one other important topic that was covered was this idea of uh, the era of nominal illusion. That you know, again. We've talked about it on here, but everybody talks about assets in terms of nominal. And the overwhelming majority of assets are priced nominally um, because nominal and real haven't been that different for 40 years. Um, there's a need for innovation to make sure that assets are uh, more looked at in real terms. Um, everybody thinks it's great that they're getting 5% in the 10-year um, and like, oh, no brainer. But in real terms, you know, how are you really doing? And 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 that's the thing that very few people think about, and it's so critically important. Again, we've talked about the '70s, but there's a dramatic need to to focus on assets as real assets, um, and this uh, and there's very little infrastructure that allows people to do that. And the big question is, people, you know, big money looking around at entities that can do that for them, and there aren't many that do that well. Um, we even talked about in that kind of private little. Uh, product innovation, um, uh, uh, you know, conversation about, you know, look, if you're looking to hedge break-evens, but not do it just, you know, trading break-evens, how do you do that with uh, convexity or non-linearly? There's literally no way to do that. It's inflation. We're talking about like the, one of the most important dynamics in the world. And there's no way to broadly hedge it. Uh, it seems like a, a problem, right? Um, so this, these were, you know, this idea of it, we're in an era of nominal illusion. I thought that was a nice kind of semantic way to express it. Um, uh, you know, I think was an important takeaway. Uh, and then lastly, I, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention zero DTE. And, and, and uh, of course, uh, that's not going to go undiscussed at the CBOs RMC, uh, given that that's something like 40% of their volume. They're, they've been, they put out uh, studies and have funded, uh, this is like drug companies, right? They always fund the, 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 the idea that, that expresses how 
how their drugs are great. Um, the SIBO uh, funded a study. You know, I love the SIBO, obviously, but I, I thought it, you know, it was an interesting study. But but they were very adamant about how uh, uh, you know the balance of trading in zero DTE is 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 incredibly balanced, right? They're, they're the supply and demand between these things. It hasn't been in balance between dealers and customers, and it kind of represents how robust and stable those markets are and have been. And so uh, that was something that was highlighted and discussed. Uh, I actually raised my hand. Uh, another, another gentleman raised their hand at this panel and, and, and I think led to some very thought provoking conversation there at the conference. And I'll share you, share with you what a couple of the questions were. Uh, the other good gentleman was at my ta table, Noel Smith from, uh, Convex, um, and, and we're friends and, you know, uh, broadly we're talking a lot, but, but my, my, what the point I highlighted was actually, uh, uh, you know, the margining issues with zero DT and how there is no real time margining for any of these and they all expire without any margin. So you're essentially dealing with a market. I mean, it's the wild West that has zero margining. There's zero regulatory margining for these things. That's insane. Right. Uh, and I think the fact that it, it's gotten to the scale and that that hasn't been dealt with is a major issue. I brought that up and there was a lot of back and forth about, um, you know, whether it's coming and what, but the, what I kind of learned is that the regulators are, really looking into this and and focusing on it and that things are coming there. So I think that's something to highlight here, you know, before anybody else that I would not be surprised if there starts to be new, different uh, margining regulatory things that change the landscape of zero DTE a bit. So that's a, a big, big thing that was brought up. Um, and then, and then two, um, the, uh, you know, the Noel asked a great question, very simple, but very important. So if everything's so great, what could go wrong? You know, and that's always a great question to ask. And there was a lot of hemming and hawing. It got quiet for a second, right? Like nobody wanted to be put, you know, the, have their you know hand placed to the fire. Um, but then I, I was actually very impressed. The gentleman from Capstone who was there, who was like kind of their head of uh, uh, Global Vol, um, really kind of stood up and said, look, there are major risks to zero DTE. Uh, and uh, the risk primarily is that we're providing liquidity um, and there's a lot of lot trading and a lot of liquidity happening uh, and a lot of changing hands, but if somebody, you know, you can't, they, they said, we do not hedge these. I thought this was interesting. Uh, you cannot hedge them. And I agree with this with deltas with, you know, you, you know, other options you go out and you kind of sell your futures or, or you can push liquidity to the rest of the market. These are so far on the tail. You could only trade zero DTE with zero DTE. You can only hedge one with the other. And so, that's great as long as the liquidity is there, but all of a sudden, if somebody comes and sweeps zero DT and there's nothing to hedge it with, right? And now dealers are very imbalanced. You could have a major uh, flow problem and it can happen instantaneously. So things may appear very balanced, but things can change very quickly. And, and they really is no way to push that liquidity to the rest of the market. And so there's a zero DT thing that's not only a very, uh, can be very violent and dramatic, but it only it's a it's a small sphere that can only hedge against itself, um, and so I think that was a really important takeaway. Um, and then uh, the last thing that was mentioned is there's a lot. The other major risk is there's a lot of now innovation happening in the area, and a lot of ETFs and other entities, other liquidity coming into the market that can be one sided. Uh, and so up until now, it has not been very one sided. But if there's an ETF which there is uh, being launched right now that is short vol zero DTE or uh, you know something along those lines that can then lead to very one-sided flows that can become make that market more structurally imbalanced than it has been. And there are fears that that may actually happen, uh, much like it happened in, let's say, GME and AMC and all these other things. If you get one-sided other entities that are not two-sided, 
then you can start to get some real imbalance that could cause more structural issues. So that was the other thing that was, it's a very interesting conference. There's more I could talk about, but I think we only have uh, you know, a limited amount of time and, and maybe we do another pod at some point or talk about these things. In, in some yeah, other form. no, ab absolutely. It does sound like I, I missed out on, on, on a great conference. Um, and, uh, and we may have to go back to this because I did note from your notes that in one of your points, you even mentioned the words, trend following which piqued my interest of course so uh <laughs> yeah yeah there was some there was some uh talk about trend following as a solution to uh you know dampening some of the volatility of portfolios there was a uh, uh, david dredge mentioned another another gentleman on there uh, had a graphic um that was essentially showing trend following's historic performance uh outside of the last 10 15 years uh for hundreds of years of history um, and and how dramatically superior it has been historically than the last 15 years up until the last years. Obviously, it's been a good two years as well. And uh, it really expressing how this period could very well be a mean reversion, much like volatility, you know, has done better and and uh, historically as we break into a, a less compressed, less um, kind of two dimensional world into something where where things can start to trend and then trend for a while. Or you know, if we're in this type of regime shift, it might be a very great time for trend following broadly. Um, and, and that, uh, it'd be, it'd be dangerous to look at the last two years and say, well, this is outside of the last 15 years of history. Uh, I, you know, the, the point was that you're, you might really be missing the big picture, which is there may be a normalization on these strategies relative to broader history. I mean, I completely agree. And, uh, we're not going to talk uh, about that in much detail right here and now because of, uh, time, uh, constraints. But what I will say, um, you know, I just got back from our uh, own headquarters and uh, uh, Don has been, uh, we just celebrated our 49th year uh, in business. So very few firms and very few strategies has an actual 49-year uh, track record. And it gives us the uh, quote-unquote advantage that we've actually traded through some of the regimes we're seeing now coming back. Um, and what I will say when you look at different periods, whether it's high inflation or even from, uh, was it 82 to uh, almost uh, 99, I think, where we had low inflation, but not necessarily stable inflation, which could be where we're heading, where it doesn't have to necessarily go completely crazy, but it's not going to be as stable as it was from 2000 until 2019-ish. Um, and yes, you're absolutely right. We see that in our track record as well, um, that there were some amazing uh, opportunities. Um, so I share the optimism expressed at the conference, and I'm sure you and I will debate this uh, with some uh, of our friends. I feel like we're like the SIBO, we're, we're talking our book here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no, but, I, always, but I obviously, yeah. obviously I agree. And that was the, the broad takeaway from the conference. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Good stuff. This was wonderful, uh, Jim. Great to uh, great to catch up with you. Uh, I'm sure the audience uh, will appreciate all the insights that you once again have shared uh, today. And as I said, I think you and I need to just identify some of our friends to come back and talk about some of the topics um, since uh, some of them, um, you know, it's been a little while since we caught up with them. Anyways, if you enjoy these conversations, please go to iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Podcast, wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a rating and review. It really does help and we so much appreciate it. If you have questions for the next co-host uh, on the uh, podcast, which is next week when I'm with Katie Kaminsky, the queen of crisis alpha, as if I can put it like this. She will be delighted to tackle your questions. And as usual, you should send them to info at toptradersunplugged.com. From Jim and me, 
Thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.